Hello and welcome to the Kufi Middle East Briefing Podcast. My name's Kasim Hafiz, I'm your host, and welcome to the show. And if you've listened to previous episodes, welcome back. Got a great show for you today, got a really interesting and just pretty awesome guest, one of my favorite people and one of the coolest people I know, and that's that's saying something, I'd like to hope. Um, but before we get to that, let's go and take a look at the news in the last week. First to Vienna, there was a terror attack this week, which ISIS, the Islamic State, have claimed credit for. It was an awful shooting spree in the city center in Vienna, Austria, killed four people and wounded 14 others. Uh, as of right now, seven of those have life-threatening injuries. The gunman was identified as Kujtim Fejzulai, who had pledged allegiance to ISIS. He was a dual citizen of Austria and North Macedonia. I mean, it's just a stark reminder that ISIS, the ideology of ISIS still exists, is still ever-present, and is still brainwashing young people to go out and murder. And the initial reports that came out said that he had opened gunfire near Vienna's main synagogue, but the synagogue was closed and unoccupied at the time. In light of this terror attack and the ongoing tensions in France with the beheading of a teacher for showing a cartoon of Mohammed a few weeks ago, many European Jewish communities are asking people to hide this, any identifiable symbols of being Jewish, which, I mean, it's it's horrifying. It's 2020, and once again, Jews in Europe are having to hide their identity because of fear of being murdered. That's just the reality. Aside from that, um, Iran, this is a strange story, I guess. Iran officials have told students burn Israeli flags at home this year due to COVID-19. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So Iran's traditional student day march, which marks the anniversary of the Iranian seizure of the U.S. embassy in 1979, due to COVID for the first time, it won't be held in person. So the Iranian government has asked people to just burn their Israeli flags and American flags at home. So, yeah, that's that's actually a thing. Um, I don't think that really needs any further analysis from me. COVID-19, your economy is having issues but make sure that you stay at home and and burn some Israeli and American flags. Iran. Iran's regime for you, ladies and gentlemen. On the topic of Iran, the IRGC, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, unveiled a new missile system Wednesday capable of consecutively launching multiple long-range ballistic missiles. Iran continues to militarize with the with the arms embargo also expiring, it means that they are in a position to buy high-tech weaponry. 
Russia and China seem willing, Russia at least, seems very willing to sell Iran any weapons it may require, but Iran is continuing continuing to develop their own ballistic missile program. Maybe they'll try and say that these this ballistic missile program is also for peaceful purposes, because nothing says peaceful like a consecutively launching multiple long-range ballistic missiles. It kind of just, I read that and say, wow, that seems like a really peaceful project. On a positive note, the United Arab Emirates, an official has come out and said that Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, are corrupt murderers. Dahar, Dahar Bilal Al-Falasi, I hope I didn't completely ruin my pronunciation of that, a member of the Federal Council of the UAE, told I-24 News in an interview that Hamas and the Palestinian Authority are corrupt and murderers. The UAE is committed to the cause, to the Palestinian people, he said. Hamas and the PA Authority, both of them are corrupt, both of them are murderers. Now, the anger on the UAE from both of them is because the UAE stopped paying anything. If you want to pay, we pay the people, not the leaders. I mean, that's really, it's a huge statement when you think about it. Coming from an Arab state, it, it shows how this this normalization of ties is moving dialogue forward in the Arab world, but also it could genuinely benefit the Palestinian people. Look, the Palestinian people are oppressed by their own leadership more than anyone else. Hamas and the PA are getting very rich at the expense of the Palestinian people. And now it's starting to be called out by governments who have given them a lot of money. So it's a positive step. And that is all we have time for for the news round today. If you're someone who has started to play Christmas music and has put up your tree already, Kufi has something special for you. This month, you'll receive Kufi's custom holiday ornament for your tree with your gift of any amount. This one-of-a-kind ornament was made in southern Israel by Ethiopian-Israeli craftsmen, and this month, it's yours with your gift of any amount. The ornament is dipped in sterling silver, hand-painted to highlight the beauty of Jerusalem, and features a timely scripture, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Visit cufi.org forward slash ornament. That's cufi.org forward slash ornament to get your ornament today available while supplies last order before december 9th okay so we have a guest on today who as i mentioned i'm really looking forward to speaking to one of the coolest people i know so today we have joining us aviva klompas aviva is the associate vice president israel and global jewish citizenship at combined jewish philanthropies cjp in boston Prior to joining CJP, Aviva worked as a senior policy advisor in the Ontario government, supporting efforts to resettle Syrian refugees across the province of Ontario. From 2013 to 2015, Aviva served as the director of speech writing for Israel's permanent mission to the United Nations in New York City. As the chief speechwriter for Ambassador Ron Prasor, Aviva crafted highly acclaimed speeches that advanced Israel policies and informed public opinion. Aviva's work has appeared in the pages of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, the Jerusalem Post, and other international publications. 
She's also the author of Speaking for Israel, a memoir about her time as speechwriter for Israel at the United Nations. She holds a Master's of Public and Nonprofit Management and Policy from New York University and an Honors Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto. Okay, welcome to the Kufi Middle East Briefing, Aviva. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to do this. Okay, so the first time I met you was in Israel, very randomly. We were at a conference, and you were, this is going to sound really awful, but you were kind of stereotypically Canadian. You were just super nice and super (laughs) polite right from the offset. Uh, That's very kind and and, uh, confusing since it is true that I'm a polite, lovely Canadian, but then I went to work for Israel at the United Nations and they began my re-education. So you must have just caught me on an off day. Well, well, I appreciate catching you on that particular day. So, so that kind of leads me into the first question I've got for you. So how does a Canadian with a bachelor's in evolutionary biology um, from the University of Toronto become the speechwriter at the Israeli mission at the UN? That's a good question. And I think, you know, you set me up in the question, which is I did my undergraduate degree in zoology, biology, and enlightenment period history, which of course leads a person to become a speechwriter. And, and the most practical of all of those was probably the zoology degree to go and work in a place like the United Nations. Um, but the truth of it is at the time when I was holding the position, there were days when I thought it was great luck and other days when I thought it was just pure bad luck that I had ended up in that role. But now five years out, I look back and I know it was Good luck, but also probably the greatest privilege of my career thus far to hold that role. So from 2013 to 2015, I was the speechwriter for Israel's delegation to the United Nations. It was a particularly interesting time to be representing Israel in the global body. During that period, I saw the collapse of four Middle Eastern states, faltering Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, waves of terrorism, stop-and-go nuclear negotiations culminating in the Iran deal, an attempt to push Palestinian statehood through the criminal court, the Palestinian bid to join the International Criminal Court, the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teenagers, Iyal Gilad and Naftali, and the ensuing 50 days of war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And that is just what was happening in the Middle East. There was also the United Nations itself to contend with, an institution that is notoriously and inherently biased against Israel. So how did I get from Canadian evolutionary biology student to speechwriter. The truth is, uh, I graduated from the University of Toronto. I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went to do a a postgraduate course in communications. I completed that. I still didn't know what I wanted to do, so I decided to go spend a year in Israel. And that happened to be during the time of the Second Intifada, when suicide bombers were blowing themselves and innocent victims up on buses and in markets and cafes. And my parents were beside themselves with worry, having me living in Jerusalem at the time. So I had committed not to take any buses and to give them at least that peace of mind. And I was broke, so I couldn't afford taxis, which meant I had to walk everywhere. And I was living in a neighborhood called Bayt Vagan, which is like the furthest residential neighborhood of Jerusalem. And on Fridays, I didn't have class. So that was the day that I really went walking. And I would walk all the way from the, the outskirts of Jerusalem to the central bus station, onto the market, Machne Huda, and then onto the old city. And that's one way, probably an hour and a half to two hours, because you know, it's stop and 
to get something to eat or something on the way. And then of course, one and a half to two hours back. But it means that I really got to know Jerusalem. And in my time in Israel, I also spent a lot of time traveling around the country. I love to hike. And there are so many beautiful places to hike in Israel. In the south, you have the desert. More south, you have Eilat, a beach town with amazing snorkeling. You have the rolling Judean hills around Jerusalem. And in the north, forests, waterfalls. So it's, it's a hiker's paradise. And I just fell in love with the country. And I fell in love with the people and the food and the culture and the spirit. It's a country that's buzzing with life. And I got interested in the politics and, of course, the conflict, since it was so dominant in my, my time there. And I had the very good fortune of meeting Natan Sharansky, who I think of as a heroic warrior for social justice and for Israel. And I remember feeling just in awe listening to his story and imagining the courage and determination he had to endure for what he believed in. And it was that conversation with him that really inspired me to go back to North America, go to graduate school and study public policy, which I did. A lot of people are cynical about government. Um, and in, in our period of time, you know, rightly so, they're cynical about government. But I really believe, and especially now when I look at the world, that when you have the right people in the right place, they can have tremendous positive impact on how society functions. So I went to NYU, I did my master's of public administration. And around that time, I started staffing birthright trips and had the good fortune of getting to go to Israel at least once a year to staff these trips. And um, when I graduated, I moved to Toronto. I started working in government, but I kept staffing birthright trips. And my trips would continue to leave from New York. And there was one time, I think it was my 14th time staffing a trip, that I was in New York and I was having dinner with my friend Tully, who's an Israeli and was working for Israel's Economic Ministry in New York. And she just mentioned to me that they were looking for a speechwriter in the UN delegation and said, well, are you interested? And I kind of laughed off the question, sure, why not? And the next day I was walking around uh, Midtown. I was on 34th Street in Manhattan and my phone rang and I had been expecting my mom to call. So it was very loud on the street and I answered and I said, I'm just gonna step into the closest door to a Victoria's Secret, just give me a moment. And I step inside and I say hello and uh, I hear a man's voice. And I'm confused because I don't know who else has this phone number. And, uh, and he also speaking very, very fast. So I say, I'm sorry, but, but who is this? And he says to me, my name is Nate, and I'm the speechwriter for Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. I want to speak to you about the position. And I'm kind of baffled because I had never expected it would turn into this phone call. I'm embarrassed that I had just told this guy, Nate, that I'm standing in Victoria's Secret. He Understandably asked me so. Of, you know, pro tip, try <laughs> not to lead with that in, in new conversations with people. And uh, Nate's peppering me with questions. I'm a little thrown off. And he says, well, you, you got to send me some speeches right now. And I say, well, I, I don't know if I can do that. I'm like, I don't have my work computer. He goes, you'll figure it out. I'm sending you an email, reply to it with speeches. And I, um, it just so happened that my best friend worked in a building not too far from there. I went to her office and I used her computer and I searched through my emails until I could find a couple of examples and I sent them to Nate. And about you know 20 minutes later or something, I get an email back saying, you have an appointment to meet the ambassador tomorrow. Send me your passport information. And I'm just like flabbergasted. Looking back, it's very typically Israeli. It's, it's haphazard. It's unexpected. Uh, it's, it's very slow and then it's very fast. Um, and I had this whole debate with my friend over whether one had to dress up to meet an ambassador. I was like, it's a very casual country. People get married in short sleeves and khakis. I don't think so. And she was like, but you're in New York. It's an ambassador. So long story short, I went to 
Banana Republic, I pulled a new outfit. I went the next day to meet the ambassador, who was the most bizarre interview of my life. Um, and the rest we say is history with a lot more of the details of how it kind of went, not as smoothly as it could have in that interview and hiring process, but it's in the book. So when you talk about the bizarre interview process, I want to ask you why, but I know why, because I've read your book. So <laughs> I think people have to read it in the book, like genuinely. It's bizarre is a very diplomatic way of, of putting it. Um, so on the sleeve of your book, uh, Speaking for Israel, a speechwriter battles anti-Israel opinions at the UN with United Nations, which I absolutely love. I've told you this many times. It is a great book. Um, it says, according to Aviva Klompas, representing Israel at the United Nations is like volunteering to sell Red Sox paraphernalia outside Yankee Stadium. So two things. Firstly, I'm a little disappointed you didn't make a hockey reference. And maybe <laughs> Maple Leafs out of, outside of Montreal. I don't know. But secondly, more importantly, that paints a pretty, not just dismal, but really scary picture. Can you elaborate on that a bit? So that analogy is influenced by the fact that I went from living in New York to Boston, which is uh, what they would consider the greatest sports rivalry. But I will correct it right now on the record and say it is like selling Montreal Canadiens jerseys outside Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, which I think is now called Scotiabank Arena. In my mind, it will forever be Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, but to answer your question, I listen, it was a startling experience. There's no getting around that. And no doubt one of my steepest learning curves was to go from working for the Canadian government to the Israeli government. It is about the greatest disparity that you could imagine. In my new office, I found myself in a place where voices were raised, doors slammed, Punctuality was fluid. Uh, planning was haphazard, if at all. Ske scheduling was an arbitrary concept. But I do have to say in their defense, it was also an office where friendships were very easily made. Loyalty once earned was unshakable, where people gathered at lunchtime to chop fresh, fresh Israeli salad, and where we felt the seriousness of our responsibilities, but didn't take ourselves too seriously. But, but that good stuff took a while to see. At the beginning, it was pure culture shock. And one of my earliest memories, most vivid memories, was sitting in my office in the, in the first few weeks of my role, staring at the whiteboard that listed all my upcoming writing assignments. It was daunting. It was just the sheer number. And also, I was new. And how do you find this information? How am I supposed to know what to say? And I'm sitting there having a bit of a pity party, feeling sorry for myself, when one of the diplomats comes bursting into my office and in the very abrupt, very direct manner of an Israeli says to me, tell me something. Why would you leave a calm and comfortable government job in Canada to come and work for one of the most hated countries in the world? Kishtagat, which is Hebrew for, are you crazy? And so that didn't really make wow. me feel better. Yeah. Understandable. But, but, but a fair question. And, um, you know, forced me to think about exactly what it was that I, I didn't tell you this part of, in the, when you asked me how I came to get the role, but, you know, it was trials and tribulations all the way until I was actually offered the role. And I, I gave them a, all these reasons in the interview process why it wasn't going to work out and they weren't accommodating we, me and they weren't budging in any way. They expected me to be flexible. And yet when they finally offered me the job, I didn't hesitate for, for a second. I took it. And I ended up writing this book because I wanted to tell the story of my time there because the current events were really interesting. 
but it's a much bigger story than that. I think it's a story about when we stand up for things and why we do what we do, what, what drives us in the world. So a quick question, just so in between being offered the role, how long was it until you were in the role and kind of hitting the ground running? That's a good question. I think uh, probably four or five months. The security clearance alone is a bit of a lengthy process. Yeah. Wow. Um, so like you said earlier, your time at the UN was one of the most turbulent as far as the Middle East was concerned and I guess the, the wider world. The Iran deal, the collapses of states in the Middle East, the kidnapping and murder of the three Israeli teens, the 50-day Gaza war, and I can go on. So how do you even begin to approach those topics? Firstly, but you had to write speeches to a, a hostile UN. Can you? So firstly, how do you even go about that process of writing these speeches to address the UN, which is largely hostile to Israel. Mm -hmm. And secondly, can you give us an insight into why the UN is so hostile to Israel? Sure. So in answer to the first one, before I started my job, because I had that long waiting period until I was able to start, I went and I read every speech that Ambassador Ron Pressor had ever given, both to the United Nations, he'd been ambassador in London, I read all of that, and I was reading lots of other speeches that Israeli diplomats and ambassadors had given, really to get an understanding of, of what was being said. And I think, you know, the content itself is not that difficult to figure out. There, there's guidelines and policies around that. It's how to convey them in an interesting way, and that was something that was unique to Ambassador Pressor. He was insistent that all his speeches be interesting. They all have original content. They all have original jokes. And that was the part that was really difficult to find the creativity. And certainly the, the joke writing alone at the beginning was tortuous for me. It didn't come easily. It was hours of hard work. It was a lot of failure. It was a lot of speeches being ripped up and handed back to me and said, start again. Um, but in time, you kind of get inside the other person's head. You learn the anecdotes that they like, the stories they want to tell. You hear something and you know, oh, they would love that included in the speech. And, and you grow a partnership together and, and it really does get easier. Though, as Nate said to me, he blocked out the first uh, three months of his job. And I think I did the same. Just it's too difficult. <laughs> um, in terms of the hostility and, and just the UN in general, I think a little bit of history and context is really useful in understanding how the UN operates and why this bias against against Israel exists. So the United Nations very quickly was founded uh, October 25, 1945. At the time, it was founded with just 51 countries. And it was founded by the victors of World War II to uphold the best of Western values. So freedom, human rights, peace. And at the same time, it's set up as a democratic institution. So every country, no matter how large or how small, how rich or how poor, gets a single vote in the General Assembly. And in the 1950s and 60s, you see these waves of decolonization sweep across the Middle East and North Africa, and country after country gains its independence and goes on to join the United Nations. So from 51 countries in 1945, today there's 193 members of the United Nations. And when you look at them, you've got to break down the numbers. Of the 193, only 87 of them are democratic in nature. So that's 45%, meaning that fewer than half of the countries in the United Nations are democracies. 
And that's already going to color how a democratic process is going to work in the institution. We also know that of 193 states, there's just one Jewish state, uh, but there's 22 Arab nations. There's 57 countries that belong to something called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, describes itself as the voice of the Muslim world. And then you have a huge block of countries, 120, that belong to something called the Non-Aligned Movement. The Non-Aligned Movement is founded during the Cold War when you had the Soviet Union pitted against the United States. And there were lots of countries in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, that didn't want to pick a side because they didn't want to find themselves at the end of it backing the loser. So they formed their own bloc, which is called the Non-Aligned Movement. And as I said, grown to 120 countries. When 120 out of 193 countries decide to vote as a bloc at the behest of their chair, that's a done deal. We call it the automatic majority. And during the time when I was working at the UN, the chair of the Non-Aligned Movement was Iran. So Iran is sending instructions to these 120 countries how to vote. And that's already going to give you insight into why things aren't going to go well for Israel. Uh, in 20... Sorry. I was going to say, they're a tad hostile to Israel, to put it mildly. Exactly. And then in 2016, just around the time that I left the UN, a chairmanship transferred to Venezuela, which I call Iran's BFF, its best fanatical friend. And so you have them ideologically aligned, and it's, it's more of the same this bias against hostility against Israel continues. That overt bias at the UN is what led Abba Ibn, who was Israel's first ambassador to the United Nations, to say, if Algeria, if Algeria were to introduce a resolution tomorrow that said the world was flat and Israel had been the one to flatten it, it would pass by a measure of 100 to 10 with 50 abstentions. Because that's the nature of the bias. And today, when I look at how the UN operates, I think you have three things going on with countries with respect to the, the way they vote on Israel. First is inertia. I think it's fair to say you see the same resolutions come forward every single year, and, and there's a lot of countries that are just voting the same way they have year after year. They're not giving it a lot of thought. They're not reopening it. It's not open to investigation. That's part one. I think you then have a group of countries that are well-meaning, but probably ill-informed or have rose-colored glasses on, and they have good intentions, but they're not really doing any favors if they're making only one-sided demands towards Israel and, and apologies for other bad actors. And then you certainly also have anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism at play. If comparisons are being made between Israelis and Nazis, that's not legitimate criticism of Israel at all. Then you have the double standard. So when criticism of Israel is applied selectively, so when Israel is singled out for human rights abuses while the behavior of other countries like China, Iran, Cuba, Syria are ignored, that's anti-Semitism. And then delegitimization, when Israel's fundamental right to exist is denied, that's anti-Semitism also. So we're talking about the bias of the UN. The UN Human Rights Council, I believe, has had more resolutions condemning Israel than all other resolutions combined. And currently, it includes those great bastions of human rights, Libya, Venezuela, Pakistan, Qatar, and next year China will take a seat on the Human Rights Council. I mean, so so you have these members of the have seats at the Human Rights Council. I mean, it kind of just reflects the absurdity of this whole kind of situation at the UN. And as somebody who was in the belly of the beast of the UN, so to speak, do you think the UN can actually be made fit for purpose? Can it go back to its in original intentions? And one, is it possible? And if so, how? 
So I think we'd have to separate the United Nations system from the UN Human Rights Council to answer that question. The notion of the United Nations, the idea that all countries would sit together in one global body and instead of taking up arms against one another, sit and talk to one another and try to work things out. I think that's that's a great idea. And I think the ideals of the United Nations are incredibly valuable and that it's meaningful and, and has purpose and it is bringing value to the world in different ways. I mean, if you look at the number of children that are vaccinated, educated, the activity to end violence against women, to increase democratic processes. These are things that the United Nations also works on. They don't get as much attention as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but they're worthwhile. And at the end of the day, uh, millions of people's lives are better off because of this type of work that's being done. But then you have the UN Human Rights Council. It sits in Geneva. It's made up of 47 different member states, including some of the luminaries of the human rights community. I say that very ironically. I see you can't see me, but I'm making an ironic face. Like you said, Venezuela, Pakistan, Qatar. Um, it's come a long way from its founding in 1946. The very first chairperson of the Human Rights Council was Eleanor Roosevelt. And at the time, the council was working with veterans, orphans, and refugees post-war. But today, the situation is very different. As you said, today, half the resolutions passed by the council target Israel. In fact, Israel is a standing agenda item. So every year, the Human Rights Council sets out its program of work, and every year, two agenda items are the same. Agenda item number four will deal with all the human rights violations of the countries in the world. So here is where they would address violations in China, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Yemen, and so forth. And then you get to agenda item number seven, which deals with human rights violations of one country and only one country, and of course, that's Israel. And my former boss, Ambassador Prasor used to say it's not a double standard, it's a triple standard. You have one standard for democracies, one for dictators, and another impossible standard for the state of Israel. I still recall there was this op-ed written by a guy named Anthony Banbury. He was an assistant secretary general to the United Nations. He'd worked there for three decades. He'd really seen all sorts of different things in deployments, working in headquarters. And he left the United Nations. He quit in 2016. And he did so writing an article in the New York Times, which was titled, I love the UN and it's failing. And I, I just pulled out a quote from it because I think it really encapsulates what you're dealing with in the UN system. He writes, and I quote, if you locked a team of evil geniuses in a laboratory, they could not design a bureaucracy so maddeningly complex, requiring so much effort, but in the end, incapable of delivering the intended result. The system is a black hole into which disappear countless tax dollars and human aspirations never to be seen again. So I think he's saying something different, something very similar to what I said at the beginning, which is the idea is there, the intention is right, but the system is failing. And I do really think that the UN Human Rights Council is irredeemable at this point. And it's not actually the first time it happened. The Human Rights Council uh, actually replaced the UN Commission on Human Rights. It was actually the UN Commission on Human Rights that was established in 1946. And then by 2006, it was deemed a failed institution and replaced by what we now call the Human Rights Council. And that commission was criticized for the composition of its members, just like today, of having members that have a dubious human rights records and including these types of states to be actually the chair of the commission when they have all these human rights problems at home. And it was also criticized um, for its bias against Israel. And so they found a new name, got some new letterhead, but are dealing with the same old problems. And the last thing I'll just say is that 
this unrelenting focus in, in the UN and really in the global agenda on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is an injustice to Israel. There's no question about that. But it's truly an injustice to tens of millions of victims of tyranny and terror around the world. In the Middle East alone, you have Yazidi, Baha'i, Kurds, Christians, Muslims being executed and expelled at an alarming rate, but we never hear about it. And there are so many millions of men and women in the Middle East who would welcome the chance for opportunity and freedom, but they're not getting that opportunity because the Human Rights Council is spending its time denouncing Israel. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point. I think that is one of the biggest tragedies of the Human Rights Council, that it is failing actual victims of human rights abuses, and it's not doing its job, essentially, because it's obsessed with Israel. I agree completely. Uh, so switching gears slightly. So during Operation Protective Edge, Ambassador Ron Prosser gave an important speech at the UN Security Council. And I, I watched this back a few days ago in preparation for this. <laughs> Around a minute into his speech, someone reaches over to play the sound of the red alert siren on their phone and hands it to the ambassador. And like I said, I'd watched this speech before, but I watched it back, and the person handing the phone is you. So, <laughs> so can you explain your thinking behind the speech and the playing of the, the sirens and the impact that that speech had? For sure. That was my literal 15 seconds of fame. You so, did incredible, by the way. It was an incredible oh, handing, handing the phone over. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit sad that that's what that's what I'm known for, handing a phone to, to another guy. Uh, so during Operation Protective Edge, there were these emergency sessions of the Security Council being called continuously. So if you recall, it was 50 days of war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And these sessions could be a weekend, they could be at midnight. And I was just churning out speeches and you would get something like maybe half a day to a day's notice when, before you would need the next one. And I was I was exhausted. I wasn't getting nearly enough sleep, but it was really important that each of these speeches be impactful. And I had gotten word uh, one afternoon that I would need to write a speech overnight for an emergency session that was happening in the morning. And these sessions, when they happened, were being broadcast live on Israeli television. And, and they mattered for two reasons. One, because that was the opportunity for Israel to tell its side of the story in a global forum. And because the Israeli public was watching. And, you know, they're watching their, their sons, their daughters, their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters in war and seeing the media coverage, which was incredibly biased and just feeling the sense of outrage and futility and frustration that, that people weren't hearing their side of the story. And so in our speeches, we were, we were speaking for them and being able to tell what they were experiencing. And so I knew it was an important speech. I'd written a lot. I didn't have any great ideas. So I did what I did, which is to go grab a few colleagues in my office. Uh, the chief of staff had bottles of liquor set up in her office and we, you know, a couple shots to get things going and then starting to toss around ideas because you need a hook, something that would get the speech off and would capture attention. And all the while, our phones were vibrating and beeping and telling us that rockets were falling in Israel. We all had the app on our phone called Red Alert which tells you when a rocket is, is falling. And in some, I guess, strange sense of solidarity, we all kept them on. You could, you could mute them so that you'd be able to sleep at night or be able to sit at your computer in peace and work. But it just felt like if there's people that are actually dealing with these sirens in real life and running to bomb shelters, then you know, it's not too much trouble to just have your phone beeping at you continuously. And, and 
that's, as I said, that sense of sort of solidarity and keeping aware of what was happening for people in Israel. So we were, um, we were tossing around ideas and then one of my colleagues suggested, maybe we'll just slowly count out loud to 15 to, to make the point of how short a time it is to be able to have to run to a bomb shelter and to like think about having to do it with an elderly person or if you're in the middle of nowhere and trying to find uh, shelter. And so she started to, to slowly count out loud, one, two, and, and when you do that, it actually sounds like a really long amount of time because it's just so slow. Yeah. And I, I kind of laughed it off and I said, well, you know, instead we should just play the siren. And everybody went silent. And we were like, yes, we're going to play the siren. And that same colleague said, you can actually do that off, off the app. And she showed us how. And so that's what we decided uh, to do. And we listened to the whale on the, on the phone and we just knew that was the introduction. And so I wrote the rest of the speech going late into the night, getting the next the, the necessary approvals that I needed. And the next morning we went to the ambassador's office with this to have the final read through before we went to the UN. And I explained to him, you know, you have to open the phone and then you got to do this and make sure the sound is on to play. The, and he was like, I'm that's, I'm in charge of reading the speech. I'm not going to do that stuff. So I said, it's okay. I'll stand beside you. I'll sit behind you. I mean, I'll just pass you my phone and you can just hold it to the microphone and, and play the siren. And that's exactly what we did. And uh, at the time, it was just stressful for me because I was balancing and I had my laptop, I had my notebook, I had the phone, get it at the right time, make sure the sound and volume and all this is on. And I played it to him. And um, that was the clip that ended up being shown all over major networks. And I was getting emails and phone calls from lots of people saying that they had seen me on television or handing my phone to the ambassador. So that was my literal 15 seconds of fame. I mean, it doesn't credit all of the speeches that you wrote, but you know, <laughs> but you were on TV for handing the phone over. Um, I think exactly. Uh, so, on that kind of train of thought, is there a particular speech that you wrote that is particularly significant or memorable to you? Yeah, definitely. So, I would say that's the Jacques speech. So, Protective Edge happened over the summer. And when the fall came around, it was another very difficult period for Israel. There was this outbreak of terror attacks that happened, a lot of car rammings, a lot of uh, stabbings, a lot of Israelis were killed. And the media coverage against Israel continued from Protective Edge, where there's always the accusations that um, Israel is always in the wrong and it's, it's an aggressor. And with all these things culminating, the ambassador was just itching to tell the world what he thought, to speak his mind. And he'd had this idea since the summer to write a speech based on Emile Zola's famous Jacques letter. So in 1898, French writer Emile Zola published an open letter titled Jacques, which is French for I accuse. And the letter exposed the military cover-up of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish officer who'd been accused of treason by the French army. And evidence of Dreyfus's innocence surfaced following his conviction, but the army hid it the information because a Jewish officer made an easy scapegoat. And Zola's letter denounced the military for the cover-up, and it was because it was published that Dreyfus was eventually acquitted. And we at the UN were in the Israeli delegation, were up to our necks in this anti-Israel prejudice, and we wanted to answer back. And the biggest speech of the year is the speech that's given on November 29th at the General Assembly debate. So the history of it is November 29, 1947, is when the UN General Assembly passed Resolution 181 to establish two states, one Jewish and one Arab. 
the resolution was adopted in the UN by a vote of 33 to 13 with 10 abstentions. That led to the creation of Israel. We know the history, the Jews accepted the proposal, um, but the Arab countries denounced it, denounced the partition plan, and they promised that they would defy it, and they did. They launched a war once Israel was established, and of course, Israel won. But that day has gone down in history of the UN. And almost 30 years after the partition plan in 1976, the UN voted to recognize November 29th as the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. And so ever since then, since 76, the date has been observed annual, annually in the UN with anti-Israel speeches, films, concerts, exhibitions. And there's a debate every single year in which country after country gets up and basically slams Israel. Wow. And so that that's a big date in general every year for a speech. And this one in particular coming after Protective Edge, well, I knew it was going to have to be a major speech that would capture headlines. So I spent, I don't know, like weeks leading up to it, agonizing, working on it, researching, talking to people about ideas. And um, whenever Ambassador Persor would see me, he would go, Columbus, I want to stick it to them with Jack Hughes. So I knew the stakes were high. And we just, I went through endless rounds of writing and editing. And I recall the weekend before the speech was to be delivered, the ambassador would, was calling me at all hours of the day and like hours where most humans should be sleeping with new ideas and revisions. And the Sunday morning, he had, he called me of this huge list of changes. And I went to this coffee shop and I don't know how much coffee I drank. I was like shaking. There was so much caffeine, just trying to concentrate to get it done. And then uh, the next afternoon was the speech. And normally what would happen, even on a day of his big speech, we'd have one final read through in the morning, and that would be it. You got to prepare the speech for the translators, for the interpreters, and various paperwork that happens. And we'd try to get that done early in the day, then go to the UN for the afternoon session. And as an added complication, um, my father had flown to New York to watch the speech in the GA that day. And I had thought, you know, I'll be down in the morning, I'll go give him a tour of the UN, and then I'll escort him to go and hear the ambassador's speech. But that didn't happen. Uh, we were making revisions up until the last minute. I had to send an intern to go and meet my dad and go oh, give wow. him the tour of the UN for me. Yeah. Um, at the time that the session started in the UN, we were sitting in my office, the ambassador, the chief of staff, one of the senior diplomats, all huddled around the computer, still trying to finish the thing off. And uh, when it was finally approved, we made this mad dash over to the General Assembly and the ambassador calmly, coolly, confidently walks into the room when it's his turn. He walks to the podium. He takes his place in front of the iconic green marble wall under the gold emblem of the United Nations. And he looks out at the room and he begins to read his remarks. And I'm exhausted. And I just slumped down in my seat and I turned to the chief of staff and I'm like, oh, that was a bad one. Right? She said, yeah, that was a rough one. And uh, at the end of the speech, one of the one of his senior advisors said to us, you know, that was a really, really good speech. I don't think you could tell just because of how you're feeling and how exhausted you are that that was something special. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's very nice. Um, but in the coming days, something strange happened. Our email and phone systems at the mission were flooded with congratulatory calls to the ambassador. The speech was being emailed around, was on social media. Um, people were emailing it to me saying, this is a must read. You should read this as a speechwriter because it's very good. And uh, the Wall Street Journal printed an excerpt of it in its notable and quotable section. Honest reporting arranged for the entire speech to be printed in the New York Times. Wow. And then Congressman Steve Israel read the, the speech in its entirety into the congressional record. That's awesome. That is one. It's very, very cool. 
Uh, and two, it must be a huge validation of all the caffeine and all the hours spent in writing and, and putting that together. You know, there's nothing quite like the rush that I felt. Not so much of the aftermath, but every time I got to sit and listen to a speech that I wrote being read by the ambassador or another Israeli diplomat in the UN, it was a thrill. There's nothing like it. To this day, there's nothing that gives me so much energy and excitement as that. That's really cool. Uh, I've got to say as well, going through like reading your book there's so many of the speeches that are very quotable i mean there are so many great quotes and that's impressive because uh, uh, quotable speeches are few and far between so well that that's very nice someone did tell me that in the cadet course so in the diplomatic training course uh for israeli diplomats that they use ambassador for speeches as a guideline. Um, now, I don't know if they're mine or, or ones that preceded me, but I think that's really, that's really cool yeah. to just know that, that they're doing that. Yeah. That, is awesome. that they live on it to some degree. Yeah. So I've got to ask you, you talked about caffeine. So I've got mm-hmm. to ask, and this is probably the most challenging and controversial question I'm going to ask today. Okay. Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Oh, there's no question here. This is too easy. It's a medium double-double from Tim Hortons every day of the week. That is... You know, I can't disagree. I, I, I'm not going to express my opinion, but I I, I can't disagree with, with your choice. That is a, a solid choice. Yeah, it's one of the hardest things about living in Boston. It's one of the, it is on the list of top 10 things I miss from, from Toronto. Uh, also on the food list are ketchup chips. You can't get ketchup chips here, and they're delicious. I don't understand. It, it it's strange. I, I, Smarties, so, uh, the coffee crisps. Yes. Can someone please send us a care package of Canadian goodies? That Thank would you. be greatly appreciated. I, it was actually I was driving a few days ago in Tampa, and they had a huge Tim Hortons billboard. I nearly crashed. I'm not mm. kidding. I was so <laughs> distracted by this thing, almost crashed into the car in front of me. But they're so selling, Tampa has Timmy's. Well, they're selling bagged Tim Hortons coffee at um, mm. some of the supermarkets. So if if you get desperate, I can I can send I can help out. I don't know. I mean, I like roll up the rim. There's a lot to Tim Hortons culture. I'm not sure you can just bag it. Exactly. No, I agree that there's a lot about it, which it's, it's an experience. Camp day day when all the proceeds go to sending kids to camp. I just, I love it. Yeah. I'm going to also admit something I did. I don't know even why, because I don't collect them, but I would get the hockey cards every year. I I felt (laughs) I had to, I just felt obligated. So I can understand that. Totally. Now we've we've covered that controversial topic. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So this year we've seen a lot of historic movement in the Middle East, signing of agreements between Israel, Bahrain, the UAE, Sudan moving towards the recognition. Mm-hmm. So did you see any signs of this? kind of diplomatic fall when you're at the UN and also what do you think is next for the Middle East which I get in 2020 is asking Mm. people to predict the future is never a great move but that's what I'm gonna do that's interesting so to the first one did I see signs of um, the thaw while I was there so so definitely I think um, what happens in the public eye and what happens in quiet quarters away from cameras or people who tweet are are two very different things. There's things that have to be said and done 
to appease the masses. And then there's conversations and mutually beneficial agreements that happen when nobody's looking that serve both nations. And, you know, given the shared regional threat of Iran, which has existed for far before I was working at the UN as a speechwriter. So the cooperation has definitely been there for a long time, which just wasn't talked about. When I was at the UN, Israeli diplomats were in conversation with just about every other country. The only two notable exceptions were the diplomats from Iran and Syria. And those two ambassadors would, would actually walk out of the room when Israel's ambassador gave the speech. But uh, I think in every other instance, there was an opportunity for quiet diplomacy to happen. And turning to today, I'm just incredibly energized by the recent peace and normalization agreements that have emerged. They mark a new phase of relations between the Muslim world and Israel. And if you really believe in peaceful coexistence and tolerance and mutual respect, then you understand that real peace only takes roots when it's embraced by people and not just governments. And I think we're seeing that the children of the Abrahamic faiths have come to regard each other more as brothers and sisters rather than enemies. And that's incredibly promising. Um, just a few days ago, interestingly, I saw the Globally Mums Council voted unanimously to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. And that's a council that represents over 1,300 imams serving more than 800 communities in 49 different countries. It's the largest international non-governmental body of Muslim faith leaders from all Islamic denominations. And if they're adopting, you know, the internationally, the most broadly accepted definition of anti-Semitism, that's another incredibly promising sign. And all of this tends to get overshadowed by the challenges in the world right now. But those peace deals and those normalization agreements are a big deal. And I think it's going to be a few years until we can really appreciate the magnitude of them. And in terms of what I think is next, I will say that my prediction for the next country to follow suit and make peace with Israel, I think it's Oman. But time will tell. We'll see. Well, that is interesting. And, and a lot going on, a lot of positive going on. Like you said, it does get overshadowed by the negative. And so... That is all the questions I have. Is there anything you want to add? Anything you would like to say? Just that, uh, just a big thank you. This was a lot of fun. It's nice to take the wolf down memory lane. Uh, it's importance, of course. And I really just appreciated that I was invited on. So thank you so much. No, thank you for making the time. And if anybody wants to keep up with you and what you're up to now, where should they go? What can they do? Twitter, at Aviva Klompis. And if they enjoyed the stories and want to hear more, then they should check out my book, which is called Speaking for Israel and is published by Simon & Schuster. Okay, awesome. And again, I really recommend the book. It's It really is. It's just a great book and it's a very enjoyable read. And once you've heard Aviva speak, you hear the <laughs> book in her voice, which is also really cool. Oh, thank you. So that may have just been me, but that's kind of how I read it. Okay, so that is all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Aviva. Once again, I want to thank Aviva for joining us. It's always, firstly, great to talk about Tim Hortons, a Canadian institution, but also for the really interesting insights she gave us for her firsthand experiences working at the United Nations in the Israeli mission. So thank you very much for joining us, Aviva. We really appreciate it. And I hope that... You guys really got something out of that and it gave you, I guess, a new perspective of what Israel faces at the UN. So moving on, I'm going to hand it over to Karina, who has a good word of biblical inspiration for us. Over to you, Karina. 
Thanks, Kasim. You know, I, I remember back in 2017, uh, optical illusions or eye tricks, uh, some people were calling them, really took the internet by storm. And, you know, first it was a dress and some people saw the dress in the colors black and blue while other people saw gold and white. Um, then it was a shoe and it looked kind of like a converse. Some people saw pink and white, other people saw gray and teal. And many long and arduous debates were held over uh, these weighty issues, right? But um, as I was listening to Aviva tell her story and share why she felt led to take the position as the speechwriter for Israel at the United Nations during really a very turbulent period of time for Israel, I started thinking, you know, telling right from wrong is it's not like that. It's not like optical illusions where uh, some of us can see certain colors while others of us see different colors and, and both options are valid. No, right and wrong is black and white. The unfortunate part is that often we, uh, as humans in our fallibility, we see gray. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian, he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And I just love that quote because it's so true often and in so many different areas of our lives, right? But, but hopefully those of us listening know that standing up for Israel like Aviva did at the UN is something that is right, period. Uh, the prophet Isaiah urges us to call evil evil and call good good in a famous verse. In chapter five, verse 20, the prophet cries out, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that as we grow and mature in our faith and knowledge, our senses, he says, will be trained to discern good and evil. That means that the more we choose to do the right thing, the better we will become at recognizing what the right thing is to do. So um, in upcoming weeks, you know, as we continue to pray for our nation and for Israel, for our personal needs, and really for the Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, let's also be sure to pray for godly wisdom and discernment that will lead us to choose good over evil, justice over injustice, and right over almost right in every era of our lives. Um, thanks for listening, those of you tuning in to Kufai's pad podcast. We're having such a great time uh, bringing this information to you. We hope you're being blessed uh, and encouraged by it to stand up for Israel with really with fresh fervor this week and next week. So thanks so much, Kasim. Thank you for that, Karina. That was fantastic. I really liked what you said about godly wisdom and discernment. It's something that we should all pray for and and all really need. And also... The idea of praying for to do right over almost right. It's so easy to get into this mindset where we justify things that we probably shouldn't justify because they're almost right rather than being right. So thanks for that. And I really hope that, that blessed all of our listeners. Short on time, but still want to learn more about Israel? Watch Kufai's micro history videos while you're sipping a second cup of coffee or taking a break from work. From the events leading to Israel's miraculous rebirth as a modern nation to wars Israel has fought and more, Kufai's micro history videos will help you learn more about Israel in minutes.
watch them at kufi.org microhistory. That's kufi.org forward slash microhistory. Discussion questions for quick learning moments with the whole family are now available. That is all we have time for for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure that you share this with your friends. Drop us a review at Apple Podcasts and listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you once again. Kasim Hafiz for the Kufi Middle East Briefing saying take care, take care of each other and God bless.